Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian. Our featured guest today is Rebecca Campbell. Rebecca Campbell is a Canadian writer of weird stories and climate change fiction. Her work has appeared in many magazines and anthologies, including the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Clark's World, and Intrazone. She won the Sunburst Award for Short Fiction in 2024, The Fourth Trimester is the Strangest, and the Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Award in 2021 for An Important Failure. New West Press published her first novel, The Paradise Engine, in 2013. Her latest novel, Arbor Reality, was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award. She lives in Windsor. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, it's so nice to be here and see you all as well. Thank you so much for coming to, you know, ask questions about my stories. Well, we are happy to do so. They are very interesting stories. So uh, your new novel, Arbor Reality, grew out of that prize-winning short story, An Important Failure. And it centers around Jacob, who's a farmer in a on Vancouver Island in a climate-changed future. And also Mason, a violin maker from the city. They go out to illegally harvest one of the largest standing Stika. Am I saying that correctly? Stika? Uh, Sitka. Sitka spruce. Sitka. Sitka spruce trees to make a violin for a young violinist prodigy, Masami. Where did the inspiration for this story come from? Um, I mean, it came from climate anxiety. A lot of it came from, came from climate anxiety. And it came from my love for a particular place in a particular landscape, which is Southern Vancouver Island. Um, the story, uh, the trees, the people, the weed farming, the... Um, the the anxiety about how climate change is going to affect that place. Um, so a lot of that story, I think, which I started before the pandemic began, and then I revised and published during the pandemic is very much infused with um, a lot of worry about how rapidly things are changing. And that kind of writerly or readerly impulse to sort of rehearse the future, to imagine ways that things can be different as a way to kind of inoculate yourself against that. Uh, and also um, on a basic level, my love for that landscape, for the kind of trees that grow there and for craftsmanship too, um, for, for slow craftsmanship, um, slow writing, slow building, um, and for the kind of skills that you need to assemble to make something beautiful and lasting like a violin and that's, or to be a musician, to play that kind of music. Um, to make those objects. Uh, and just my my love for people who commit their lives to learning a skill like that, to learning to work with wood um, and imagining what the future will be like for those people. So very much from anxiety and love, I guess. But I think a lot of climate change fiction comes from those two things. Okay. Well, the story ends with Mason's violin finally getting to Masami decades later. Um, and her dreams of a career behind her, but there's still faint hope for her children and grandchildren, perhaps. So it's kind of a failure. Why do you think it's an important one? Um, because it still matters to, to, to hope and to make those sorts of creative acts, even as we're all living in a state of 
horrific anxiety about our future. Um, and that even small acts like that can matter. And I'm not, I like to think I'm not sentimental about whether small acts can save the world, but I think they are one of the things that matter. And so Mason seeing a genius whose life is not going to go in the direction that she intended it to go because the world around her is changing um, and making something for her. And even if he doesn't know where that's going to go or doesn't know where she's going to go, that act of generosity is valuable um, and, and courageous too. So he hasn't saved the world, but it's important that he created what he created. And that's sort of, um, again, that's as hopeful as I can get when I'm writing climate change fiction, I think. The idea that what we do still matters. An important failure also talks about the history of Katza or Lake Cowichan in BC after the Little Ice Age in the 1300s. And all the stories in Arboreality are set there or in Vancouver. Why did you choose this area as the setting for your stories? Because I love it and I know it well. And I grew up sort of south of there, right on the coast. Um, so I, I spent the first 25 years of my life living there. And then I lived in Vancouver. So they're landscapes I know really well. They're also landscapes with a really ancient history that goes back thousands and thousands of years. Um, as I was writing Arboreality, a lot of it was also kind of grappling or trying to understand my own inheritance as a settler uh, and understand my relationship, my love of the place in the context, in a, in a sort of a larger colonial context. Um, and so I think trying to reach back a little bit and refer to that history to um, to put my stories the sto and the story, these sort of near future stories in the context of a much deeper, longer 10, 20,000 year human history um, just seemed very important as a gesture. You know, Canada, Canada didn't start, uh, you know, in the, wherever you want to put that line in the 16th century, in the 17th century, in the 18th century. Um, and that context just seemed ethically very, very important. If we're going to talk about climate change and if we're going to talk about um, people who have seen it all over 20,000 years on the West Coast. They've seen tsunamis, they've seen pandemics. Um, and it's, I think it, it can be easy in science fiction to forget that stuff because it tends to be oriented towards the future. Um, and that to me seems like a missed opportunity for something profound and rich. And I mean, I wouldn't write that as a white settler lady, uh, but I think I can gesture towards it. I can remind people that it's there a little bit. In the first story, Special Collections, um, it's about a professor who's part of a network of people trying to decide which books, to, which books to save from a university library as water rises. Uh, if you were in the professor's shoes, which books would you choose to save and why? <laughs> I don't know if I can do that. See, there's the question. Are you selfish and just save all of your favorites? So all of Ursula Le Guin and Middlemarch, you know, and War and Peace and uh, all of Richard Aikman and stuff like that. I don't, you know, I think I would probably be practical and I would get as much about agriculture and uh, first aid and history in there. The stuff that people need to know to protect themselves, to grow food, and to have a sense of mistakes that have already been made so they don't make them again. That might be a little Pollyannish, but that would be my dream. Yeah. 
And then, of course, I would still include Middle March because it's my favorite book ever in, in the history of the world. So, <laughs> the arbutus tree is a recurring symbol throughout the book. Am I saying that one correctly? Arbutus. Arbutus. Okay, thank you. Um, can you tell us why you chose that tree? What makes it special? Oh, it is so beautiful. I wonder if I have. Um, I don't have one handy, but uh, it's my mother's a painter and she paints uh, the landscape, the same landscape I'm I'm describing in this novel. And for Arboreality, I got her to do a painting of the golden Arbutus tree, the sort of imaginary future version of the Arbutus tree. Um, and it, it really captures just how gorgeous it is, gorgeous it is, but I didn't put one out, unfortunately. Anyway, oh, and this is a podcast, so it's not much good to your audience. Anyway, um, I chose it because it's got a very narrow range um, right along the coast to maybe Northern California, there might be a few, um, and not that much farther north. So north of where the story takes place. Um, it's got a very narrow range. It's stunningly beautiful. And that thing will grow out of sheer granite cliffs. It's tough. It's um, magnificent. It feeds birds. Um, it's not a, yeah, it's, it's just a spectacularly lovely tree. And I grew up under them kind of, um, because they're everywhere in that part of the world. Uh, and like I said, and they're also, they resist, um, because of the way they grow out of rocks, they tend to twist a lot in order to find water. And because they grow out of cliffs, they have to twist in order to find light. Um, and so there would for a very long time and still really isn't, um, commercially viable because it checks and twists, it resists, um, the human attempt to make it into something. It just is itself. Uh, and I love that. I love that. Its branches are full of birds because it also bears berries. So, so Arbutus trees at the end of the year, uh, or the end of the summer rather, are just covered with birds. Uh, they're a real pleasure to see. Excuse me. The people of Katza aren't completely out of touch with the rest of the world. There are some shipments of dried food and there are some telecommunications. How important do you think connection and communication will be to surviving the effects of climate change? I think it's all we've got. Um, and I think a lot of the story is about, about ways to connect with the past, ways to connect forward to the future, ways to connect across the strait when you're living in an island and stuff like that. Um, oh no, I think, I think it's gonna be profoundly important. And especially uh, I included all the shipments of food because the, the difficulty of actually supporting a sustainable agricultural community in a space like that uh, is almost impossible, um, at least at the scale of population that would be living there at that point. Um, and so those sort of connections to the mainland, to central Canada, to the breadbasket of Canada, if you want to call it that, yeah, I, I'm, they're profoundly important. Um, we can so easily get isolated and so easily get, um, get separated and fearful of one another. Um, it's, it's a connection I think is the only thing that's gonna save us, especially connection that sort of runs parallel to um, more mainstream or dominant forms of discourse. In the final story, the Canadians arrive. They're young, enthusiastic ambassadors, one of many groups traveling to remote areas. 
They seem enamored with climate havens like Detroit and the technology and new business opportunities there. And they're unimpressed with the local creations like the church growing from living trees and ways that the Katza people have learned to live with changes in nature. Is this story a hopeful vision about the survival of the society we know today? Or is it a warning about returning to our old ways or a bit of both? Huh, that is a really good question. Uh, one of the things I wanted to do was not offer a single solution because I think that's one of the problems with, with modernity period, right? Is that this idea, this obsession with a singular solution that we'll build a single grid and it'll sit, fix everything, a single dam, a single solution. Um, and so what, what I wanted to offer were really, really, local solutions to the problem of climate change and how people continue to live. So central um, Central Canada, Southern Ontario, um, those connections with, with um, cities like Toledo and Detroit and Cincinnati, which are places with huge infrastructure um, that are going to be sort of, uh, the effect of climate change on them is going to be mitigated because of their climates, because they're far from, from the coasts, and they already have resources to house many, many people, or they used to. Um, and so I wanted to imagine a top-down solution to climate change, uh, one that starts, that is centralized and works outward from there. And then I wanted to imagine a grassroots solution, or not a solution to climate change, response to climate change. So one solution that is a mass mobilization on par with the Second World War in the UK or something like that. Uh, and one that is just people attempting to make the world in front of them work. Uh, and it seemed important to me to sort of balance those and also not to automatically say that a top-down solution is impossible, but maybe it needs to be mitigated by local solutions that uh, one encyclical out of Ottawa is not going to fix or even apply to the thousands and thousands and thousands of small towns uh, and the millions of people in Canada who are going to be struggling with this. So it, for me, a lot of it was sort of working through different ways that in the past we've solved these things um, and thinking about different kinds of strength, too. Uh, and so the, the part with the Canadians, I really love the Canadian char characters because they are young and they're optimistic and um, and they've been told their entire lives that they can do this. And I think that's powerful, you know, and that kind of unity is powerful. But I also wanted to offer a couple of guys sitting on a beach somewhere <laughs> and a person and, and a grandma and an aunt and someone having a salmon barbecue and the way that they can make a functional and useful society as well. Like that seemed very important to me. The Canadians do kind of remind you of one of those youth singing groups from the 60s and 70s. Yeah, they have that sort of attitude. Yeah. Oh, totally. Exactly. And God bless them. God bless yes, them. Yes. You know, Absolutely. and they have tambourines and stuff. <laughs> So overall, the book does provide a sense that human beings and culture will survive in some form. What influences did you draw from to create this kind of a vision of the future? Hmm. What influences? I mean, a lot of it was thinking about the people and the resources where I grew up and trying to sort of imagine um, what you would do with the very specific landscape you had there. Uh, a lot of it also went to the kind of research I was doing on um, like indigenous permaculture there as well. So um, sea gardens, forest gardens, a lot of a lot of permaculture that wasn't even recognized as 
as land management techniques when white settlers first arrived. They assumed it was an uncharted natural wilderness, blah, 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 blah. But in fact, as we know, all Indigenous groups were managing the landscape in fascinating and complex ways, really sophisticated ways. Uh, so it was looking back to see how the landscape supported people um, with a different kind of agriculture. Um, part of it was also uh, Ursula Le Guin's work, if you've ever read Always Coming Home, uh, which is a kind of imagined future of Northern California. Uh, and I found that very useful as well, uh, as I was sort of thinking through this. Um, and also, I think probably a little bit of what I would want to survive and the idea of, of you know, imagining a future after climate change where people still sing and people still play music and they still tell stories, that it doesn't have to that we can, those things are portable and they're resilient and they're flexible and they're not going to go anywhere. You know, that, that seemed very important to me as well. I'm trying to think of what else, you know, uh, a while ago, uh, when I was working on my first novel, I used to read masses of apocalyptic fiction because <laughs> that was what the, the topic of the first novel. And I wonder how much of arboreality is also kind of a counter response to a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, to the, the the many narratives of nuclear apocalypse that, you know, belong to the Cold War, going back to the 1940s and 50s, uh, and trying to imagine something with families, something that's humane, something where there's room for kids, that kind of stuff. So there's what the research I did, but there's also my kind of counter response to what had kind of dominated science fiction into the world stories for a while there. Just to follow that up, um, do you see that maybe there is a little bit more shift in science fiction in general, that, there, that people are starting to write more stories like that as opposed to the apocalyptic kind of narrative? Yes, absolutely. I think that there is a real desire for that. Um, and I think that people are very, I mean, Stelliform Press, uh, which is out of Hamilton, uh, run by an amazing woman who works Incredible. I mean, as all small presses have to be driven by one person who's willing to work. Um, her her mandate, the mandate of Stelliform Press, is stories about climate change that aren't apocalyptic, that are about transformation, that are about change, but are but don't default to those sort of um, almost uh, eschatol eschatological narratives that owe a lot more, I think, to sort of a Christian tradition, um, in which. Uh, what's the Le Guin quote? It's easier to to imagine the end of capitalism, or no, the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, um, and offering stories that are an alternative to that. So yes, look at the, the work that Stelliform's doing uh, for a very conscious turning away from those apocalyptic narratives and just how valuable that is. Okay, so what are you writing now? Uh, I'm always writing short fiction. Um, I'm always, yeah, I've got a couple of short stories I'm finishing out and hoping to send out. I just finished uh, the first like readable by another person draft of a novel, um, which sort of engages with some of the, very much engages with our relationship with technology in different eras. Uh, so that's kind of been on my mind. That's been occupying my mind for the last years. So I'm very pleased uh, that that's almost finished. But yeah, right now it's just been the treat of writing short fiction. After writing big sprawly things, it's so nice to focus on something 
that you can actually read in a single day, you know, and actually see all at once. So it's mostly been uh, short, weird stories. Um, one about a salmon forest, uh, one about a medium, which is kind of a gothic ghost story thing, which I'm really, really, really enjoying. So I hope I hope those find homes, but you know, you can never, it's never reliable. It sounds very cool. Would you like to read some of Arbor reality for our listeners? I would absolutely love to. I've chosen a short passage from the first section of the book, which takes place not that far in the future, maybe 10 or 15 years. Um, and a lot of arboreality, the writing of it was an attempt to kind of oscillate between a character's point of view and a climate's um, or a ecosystem's point of view to kind of alternate or oscillate in order to capture um, the different scales we need to grasp in order to understand climate change, the, the microscopic and the global, right? Um, so this particular passage is my attempt to write uh, kind of from the point of view of a tide pool. Um, this is a little dark and sad, but you know, it's a book about climate change. So it is dark and sad in the first chapters. Um, okay, so this is from the very first section and uh, okay. The tide pool holds 2.35 liters of salt water, cupped in a massive deposit of quartz diorite on the western shore of Saanich Inlet. The pool has been here since the morning of 26 January 1700, when the last megathrust earthquake shook it into place. The 2.35 liters are refreshed every 12 hours and 24 minutes by a new tide spilling over its lower southeast facing lip. In three centuries, it has shared the inlet with ocean gardens full of mussels, middens, beach parties, clear-cut logging and industrial fishing, ocean acidification, jet skis, and salmon runs. In that time, life in the pool has presided from a distance over the fashion for pompadours on men and scandalous two-piece bathing suits on women. It has held sea snails, barnacles, limpets, and hermit crabs who feed on the rich biofilm that coats its walls. This day in July is so still, the water hardly moves, and the air seems to hang from the branches of our butis trees above the little pool. At two in the afternoon, the temperature reaches 31 degrees Celsius. Granite doesn't mind, of course, but the evaporating water leaves a thin salt crust on the edges of the pool. For a week, every consecu consecutive afternoon is hotter than the one before, 32 degrees, 35 People in the couch and valley rise early to soak their curtains before they withdraw into the darkness. 37. The woods are dry. The deer are so still they seem already heat-stroked. The rabbits have all disappeared. From Tacoma to Port Hardy, high pressure drives the cloud cover away, further compresses and heats the atmosphere. 39. 42 degrees. The people standing on concrete in the treeless neighborhoods, two people standing on concrete in the treeless neighborhoods, the air feels like insulating glass, thick and darkly gold. The blue sky is hot to the glance. 43 degrees, 46. In Victoria, a poor girl renting a crooked room dreams of rain. The grid flickers and fails one night. The beaches are full of strangers, sleeping side by side in the darkness. 12 children die on the first night and 43 terminally ill people in a nursing home. Those families who can afford it flee to an air-conditioned movie theater outside of town that's showing the director's cut of The Lord of the Rings and children fall asleep across their parents' laps, sticky with treats, begging to go home to bed. 
In the early mornings, the water and the rocks around it are cool. The barnacles are attached by their heads to the ground, using the cement they excrete, excrete to attach themselves and build their outer shelves. By noon, the water is hot to the touch, 51 degrees Celsius. And in the long, still afternoon that follows, proteins in the barnacles' bodies denature. Cells can no longer undertake the necessary functions of life. At low tide, the whole beach smells of rot, the open mouths of mussels. In Victoria, an 85-year-old woman in an apartment on Fort Street with a south-facing window sees the sunrise and thinks, this day will be unendurable. She is already dehydrated, her blood thickening in her body. It is 47 degrees in her tiny airless room. She has sprayed the curtains down with warm tap water. She sits near the window, her legs too swollen to walk, and thinks of a day in 1945 when she was small and standing in a tide pool in the rock that underlies Saanich Inlet. It is 48 degrees in her apartment. She thinks of water, of climbing onto barnacled rocks, 49 degrees. It is 50 degrees. She should be careful not to cut herself, but the water around her foot is already stained red. In her brain, the thickened blood clots. She's bleeding. She's bleeding. Thank you. Thank you. Rebecca Campbell, we're so happy you joined us today. And the name of the book is Arbor Reality. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to talk. Today, we're hearing from a former University of Windsor student who publishes through the local imprint, Adventure Worlds Press. Brittany Brin writes science fiction. She has an MA in creative writing from the University of Windsor. Her interests include rocks kicked up by the ocean, books from friends, and comfortable sweaters. She lives in a tower and sometimes a cottage with her husband and two cats in Nova Scotia. Her latest book is Where Long Shadows End, the third in her series, The Patch Project. Here's a bit about the book. Ever since the apocalyptic event six years ago, Pino has been able to heal people. But after losing her friend Ed in the wasteland, she's been camping out in the world's last forest alone, nursing her guilt. As the seasons turn, mysterious disappearances and missing trade caravans begin to point to a greater threat crossing the wasteland. And Pino may be the only one who can stop it. In this conclusion to the Patch Project series, Pino will have to face the long shadows of her past if she ever hopes to build a better future. Let's hear Brittany read a selection from where Long Shadows End. Living in the woods was a lot harder than Pino had anticipated. On the wasteland, things were clear-cut. You either had water, or you didn't. The figure on the horizon was either a bloodthirsty grafter, or they weren't. But the way of life in the trees was more nuanced. The animals were cheeky and dangerous all at once. A plant kept all of its toxins in one place, its fruit in another, and some parts of it existed all on their own outside of human need or interest. What a change it was from the bleak and flat lands that Pino had lived through. She camped in the green buffer zone between the wasteland and Always Restaurant, moving locations each night. She learned to live in the lush silences of the forest, where something was always happening behind the screens of leaves, under the branches strewn across the ground. She got to know where birds nested, their calls and routines. Using what little knowledge of plants she'd picked up at Always, she determined which berries and mushrooms to avoid and how to identify stinging nettle and poison ivy. The creek was never far in this part of the woods, and she came to it daily, as if to a cherished friend. A bear lived deeper in the forest. 
Pino occasionally came across tracks and had once seen it down the creek, its underbelly shaggy and dripping water. The bulk of it, the sheer presence of its size was breathtaking, an awe-inspiring giant. She'd crept backwards, holding her breath. After that, Pino and the bear kept out of each other's way in a season-long dance, turning aside when too many signs of the other appeared. Pino's diet was better than it had been in a long time. She caught rabbits and snares, killing them with a sharpened piece of thin copper pipe she'd found discarded in the woods. As the spring bled into summer, Pino became a bona fide predator. She felt a grim satisfaction that her knowledge of violence, her experience of it as a teenager, now had application. Grafters sometimes crossed the line between the wasteland and the forest. If the grafters were merely cutting firewood or were regulars, Pino let them pass. If they were heading towards the restaurant with bloody intentions, Pino dealt with them. No one would threaten the people up there again, not if she could help it. And during the long, dark nights wrapped in her tarp, sometimes with a fire to keep her company, she'd think about Ed. She gave up too easily after he went missing. She'd never found a body, and there were definitely people responsible for his disappearance. But the trail had gone cold after about a day, and she'd had no choice but to return to the restaurant to pass on a message for Ed to stay there, a place of safety, of community, a place she was no longer part of. Back then, she'd figured that Ed would somehow get away and make it back to always. But her reasoning left room for regret. What if Ed couldn't escape? Where would she look for him now? Where would she even start? The wasteland was huge, impossible to search on her own. She could send messages to other camps through the trading caravans, but replies would take months. She mauled over her options, but couldn't find anything satisfying. Days passed, then weeks. The forest became all there was. The forest and the guilt. Where Long Shadows End by Brittany Brin is available at Amazon, through Chapters, or your local library. There are also some copies available in Windsor at Juniper Books and Biblioasis. In Nova Scotia, you can find it at the Dartmouth Book Exchange and Bookmark Halifax. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.